today to to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I almost said Ephesians. Paul is sending Timothy to Ephesus to the Ephesians, but it's in 1 Timothy 5 and verses 17 through 22 where we're focusing today in our survey of the Christian life of the Apostle Paul, his ministry. And we have a summary of the way the church is supposed to treat the elders. Remember, in chapter three, you have the qualifications for the elders. There's a lot about the ministry of the elders, or as I say, of the pastors of the church. And again, I would say pastors, elders, and overseers are all the same, all the same person because of first Peter chapter five, verses one through four, which instructs that according to the apostle Peter as their fellow elder, that the elders not rule over or, or, or it over the flock. They don't lord it over the flock that's been allotted to their charge, but they're an example to them and they feed them and they shepherd the, the elder uh, shepherds, Poimino, that's a pastor, and he exercises oversight that is uh, episcopo, where we get the word bishop. So if you're in a church where they say, well, I was the pastor, but my 20th anniversary, they've promoted me to bishop. Well, um, actually, elder or presbyteros, where you get Presbyterian, overseer, which is episcopos, where they got bishop here at bishop, episcopos, episcop, bishop, where you got bishop and then pastor, they're all the same person, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, is one key pay, place. Now, the most important verse, I think, in the Bible on who is the pastor on pastoral ministry is in first Peter chapter two, where at the, where at the end, he identifies the Lord Jesus Christ as the shepherd pastor and guardian in the new American standard. That's overseer, that's episcopos of our souls. Every pastor so gifted by the spirit, every pastor so designated Ephesians four eleven. every pastor is a sheep dog under the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd. We're all working for him and his flock. It's so important to understand this. So we're talking about this doctrine today of how the elders or pastors are to function and how the church is supposed to consider them. And we read it in some detail, not as much as obviously I'd like to do. We should, we, last hour we covered in one little chunk what we would usually take you know, five or six messages to work through because it was this whole discussion on how the church will treat the elders. Very briefly, we said the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at literally speaking the word and teaching. For the scripture says in Deuteronomy chapter 25, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And in Luke chapter 10, verse seven, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So you support the pastor, elder, presbyter, overseer, and now you protect not against their sin, but against the attacks of sinners. So when you have what we call a whisper campaign, someone makes an accusation and it kind of seeps in. No, no, no. Everybody who hears something like that, I'm not trying to fortify my position here, but what the word of God says is that you shut that down unless there are two or three witnesses, unless there's more than one witness. And then we have to adjudicate impartially as Paul will say, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Actually, it says, we'll have fear. They will have fear of sin. 
So many times we're commanded not to fear in the scriptures. But very often we are also commanded to fear. The fear of the Lord means a fear of the consequence of sin. Well, really, what does that mean? Read the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Read what Jesus says about fearing God in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God, of Christ Jesus, and of his chosen angels, to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Some of this is paraphrase of the Greek, but it's close. It's close enough. You get the, the sense of what he's saying. This is hard stuff to allow or to encourage, to equip, to insist that a church will call out leaders that are in sin and rebuke them so that everyone has this example. It's a hard thing. And so Timothy, this is going to be hard on you. Remember, Timothy is being sent to Ephesus where in chapter one, he is to rebuke and correct people who are into false teaching. And the false teaching isn't coming from the bottom up, perhaps. It may well be from the top down. So in chapter four, you speak, if you have to speak a word of correction to an elder man, you do it as to a father, to an elder woman as a mother. It's family to a, to a young man as a brother, to a young woman as a sister in purity. Th this, is, this is how you treat each other, P Timothy, as you're going in there to bring correction to false doctrine. That's the context for what he's saying. So this is hard, what he's being sent in to do. But I solemnly charge you to maintain these principles without bias. And then he says something that echoes 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. I don't think this means restoration of a sinner back to fellowship. I think this means the designation of an elder. He's talking generally about an elder. But it could be restoration of an elder back to fellowship. Nevertheless, too hastily means that we don't know what we don't know. And you need to take time with something. We need some well-time-proven uh, experience with someone before we designate them in a position of authority. This is, I contend, what Paul is referring to uh, as what we would call today as ordination. Because here's the thing. In 1 Timothy 3, if you make a, a new believer an elder, then he is going to become conceited and fall into the snare of the devil. That's bad for him. He crashes and burns, and it's ugly. And what happened? He got arrogant. He was proud. It's the snare of the devil. He's the guy up front and everybody should listen to him and ha ha, it's me, right? That's the arrogance problem. But here, Timothy, it's on you. This is the warning about you laying hands too hastily because you will share koinonia fellowship. You will participate, partake in the sins of others. When he takes this church the wrong way, you said he was ready. And they rightly should come back and look at you. They rightly should say, but you said, and he, and, and here's the thing. If I ever, if I ever ordain someone, if I'm ever part of an ordination where I lay hands in prayer and say, God, we are recognizing what you've done in making a pastor here and raising him to a sufficient maturity spiritually to lead your people. If I ever participate, I'll never have, but if I ever participate that in that, and then the person goes wrong, go, gets confused, gets into false teaching. And I've seen it a lot. If that happens, I will say, I, before you, I humble myself. I thought he was ready. I thought he was able. One of the biggest lessons I learned as an army guy is a hard lesson to learn.
But the people that you lead have to be able to hear two things in, in a broken human situation where we're sinners and broken and, and all that we are. Leadership has to be able to say two things and followership has to be able to hear two things. And I didn't, I wasn't taught this. I mean, except my life, this is my own observational statement. You have to be able to hear from your leadership that you're wrong. You have to be able to hear you're wrong and you need to correct it. That's hard to do. There needs to be trust. There needs to be an expectation. We're not being self-righteous with you that we're not standing on some moral high ground and feeling better about ourselves. No, no, this is for you. This is the wrong thing. You need to be able to hear from your leaders that you're wrong. And you also, this is, this is sometimes for some people even harder because they're iconoclastic because they make an idol of their leader. And then when they see failure, they try to destroy the person. But this is the second thing you need to be able to hear from leadership. I was wrong. I'm wrong. I, I got this wrong. That you have to be able to hear that because the person is a human that is broken, incomplete understanding. Nobody's Jesus, but Jesus. Nobody's perfect, but God. And so see these two things, this is a big problem between leadership and followership, right? Sheep and flock to be able to say, Hey, you need to get back on the path and receive that. And then to say, Hey, I stepped out for a second. I, I, I was wrong here. I, I was, I was misunderstood. I, I was misguided. And it's hard in our arrogance and our self, uh, self importance to say that sometimes. And it's hard for us when we're following someone to hear that sometimes, but that's the nature of the case because we're all broken. And, and that's humility in my view. Now, this is the paragraph. What follows from the Apostle Paul to Timothy is similar in verses 23, 24. It's the same topic. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. What does that have to do with anything? Well, uh, this is not the one verse in the Bible that says, there you go. Wine, it's on. It's, by, it's far from the, the only verse that talks about this. But it follows, look in the context, Timothy, you young man are going to go have to do hard things in a, in a, you're going to have to be gentle with these men and speak to them as fathers and say, you're in false doctrine. What, what, what about wine would settle What about a settled stomach? This is nerves. I think the frequent ailments of Timothy are what we today would call psychosomatic, high stress, high pressure, because he's traveled with Paul so much and they've been through so much. Timothy has been very traumatized. And so I think that this is not bad medical advice. I think this is, this is the kind of advice that a doctor would give of a sedative nature, not to drink till you go to sleep, but to settle your nerves. That's what he's talking about. It's also often pointed out, this indicates to you that Timothy doesn't drink. Timothy's not a, drink, a, a drinker of any alcohol. Paul's saying you use a little to calm yourself, apparently, because he says, for the sake of your stomach, now, I know a man named David Tongren who would be very happy to tell you that his daily use of a little bit of alcohol on the way home from the, from the store, he would have preached this from the play. We told everybody this because he was a big teetotaler in the last half of his life, you know, 50 years. But he said, he said every day after, after work, I would stop at the bar and just have a couple of drinks and then go home and never got drunk. And then after so many decades of doing this, I had to have a portion of my stomach removed because it was burned through irreparably with, with huge bloody ulcers. And it was because of that daily use of alcohol, according to Tongren. That's, that's his testimony. And so 
why am I saying that? Well, he says the, the yeast that we're talking about here is going to settle, not burn through your stomach. <laughs> All right? Now, what does verse 24 have to do with verse 23? The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. This is talking about what's known and what isn't known. What's out there and open and what's hidden. And in the context, we're talking about men who have to be called before the church who have in personal sin and they have to be corrected. And then everyone sees the example. See, Timothy, this is hard work and you're going to have to have nerves of steel to do this and do it impartially. And you just have to be careful about laying hands too soon because you don't really know all that you might like to know about someone. You can spend a year talking to someone weekly and still really not know what you're really dealing with. I promise. It's very challenging. And so we just have to be very careful. And conservatism means to me that every gun is loaded. Do you know what I mean by that? It means I'm an extreme cynic about human beings. Every gun is loaded. What? what, what? Every sinner is a real sinner. Every gun is loaded. You see a gun sitting there? That's a loaded gun. Well, how do you know it's loaded? Well, it doesn't matter how you know it's loaded. The question is that you don't know that it's not. So it's loaded. That, that, that thing will kill you if you touch it the wrong way. It'll kill someone that you don't. That's what I mean. Conservatism, in my philosophical opinion, says every gun is loaded. Every sinner is broken. Every worker, if given work not to work, will not work. Sorry, I'm getting into politics, you know, current, current events. But I'm just saying that's, that's the way we think, that we're, that we're in a broken situation. And so when you're dealing with the sins of some men are quite evident. You see them. But, and going before them, and obviously they're going to receive a judgment. For others, their sins follow after, and we didn't know. And so this is a warning in verse 24 about laying hands too hastily in verse 22. That's the paragraph. All right, some points of summary as we close today. I have nine things that would summarize all that we just read theologically. And I think, I hope this will help you understand. I'm going to use the word pastors throughout this because I think that the elders are the elders of office. And again, we tend to recognize the spiritual gift of pastor and those that we designate as elders. Pastor leadership, first of all, focuses on the teaching of God's word in verse 17. Double honor goes to those, especially who work hard at the word and teaching. Pastoral ministry is about the word of God implanted in our souls and bearing fruit. And I know that because Jesus tells Peter when he restores him in John 21, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. Bosco does not mean simply tend. It means to feed, pasture them so that they eat, feed them. That's what pastoral leadership will focus on. And that's why he says it this way when he summarizes. Second, it is immoral to fail to support those set aside to teach the word. It is immoral. Paul goes back to Deuteronomy and the basic idea of taking care of your animals and taking care of your laborers. It's immoral to hire someone for a job and not pay them. And our church, I, our church believes this. Y'all take wonderful care of us, as of me, in, in remuneration for the work I do. And your offerings to God, and they are, it's worship to God, are used in the way we have elected together to do it. They're used to support me for my li living so that I can focus on this work. And we are, I believe, exemplary as a church family in this way, in this consideration. But it's immoral, according to 
verses 18 and 19, to, to fail to support those set aside to teach the word. Third, pastors must be accountable to the congregations and vice versa. This may be the first time you've ever heard it that way, that a pastor or elder has to be accountable to the congregation. Any one of you can say, I am confused about this. Help me understand. And if you ever ask me something where you, you're, you're acting this way, but this is what, it seems like this is what the scriptures say. If you've ever seen me say, well, you said this, but the Bible says this. I inevitably will go to the text. I will inevitably say, and a lot of times I'll say, well, come here, I'll show you on the text. We'll pull it up real quick and I'll show you what the Greek is there or something like that. It's called accountability. Again, it's something that I learned in a lifetime of submitting to Bible teaching. It's something I learned uh, practically in military service. Leaders are not leaders because they have authority and they direct people with their authority. They have the authority so that they know what is necessary and they lead their people to do what they need to do. And that involves accountability. It involves an interpersonal connection. And it, it isn't just that there is the authority, but people are people. And leadership means always a mutual accountability. Fourth, and, and again, I'm not preaching the, the army here. I'm illustrating with the army. I'm preaching the text of scripture in 1 Timothy 5, when he says you have to bring up on charges people with two or three witnesses. And you have to rebuke them in the presence of all because Everyone is following this example and they need to see the example and, and get the benefit of the example. Fourth, the pastor is an example of faith and good works. That's just obvious from the context and from the whole of scripture. We're an example of faith and good works. We're supposed to be in front. He says in verse 17, those who stand in front are good leaders. Proestemi, to stand in front. That's an exemplary thing. We're all supposed to follow Jesus, the great shepherd, but shepherding means that there's a following. There's a leading following. They're following the leader example setting thing. And so we're to be an example of faith and good works. And so fifth, when the exemplar fails through sin in this passage, the correction has to be, be made because of the church following the example. The correction sixth continues the effective example of the pastor. You can follow my behavior, or if I'm rebuked, you can follow, I don't want to get rebuked like that. That was embarrassing. That's the idea. So the exemplar is happening regardless. Th this is the, the bad side of the proverb. The word proverb can mean a wise saying, like an aphorism, but can also be used throughout the Old Testament as someone that you don't want to be like. You don't want someone to call you a proverb. That means that if you act like him, you'll end up like him. But nobody wants that. That's a proverb. And so that's the kind of negative side of, of example, example setting we're seeing here. And uh, you can see how this would motivate us to walk the line. <laughs> Seventh, the principle, not personal relationships, must take priority in pastoral leadership. This sounds like straight out of some professionalism manual in the U.S. Army or some HR directive or something, I'm sure some seminar on leadership, but it is, well, maybe it used to be that it is, it's not personal relationships. If your best friend is the elder who's needs to be rebuked, well, that's going to hurt. You're going to have to steal your nerves and settle your stomach because you're going to have to go and make this necessary rebuke. Principle, not personal relationships must take priority in pastoral leadership. He says, without 
partiality. An eighth, pastors must be spiritually mature, i.e. elders. They must be spiritually mature. Now, this is a difficult thing because there's not like a, a sticker on every pastor that uh, when they finally reach spiritual maturity, it turns the right color. Ding, he's done. That's, that guy's mature. It's, it, this is a, a difficult topic, spiritual maturity. Here's what I mean. There's a difference between a 14-year-old and a 22-year-old. Amen? What do we call uh, somebody under 18 in our culture? A minor. Not the kind in West Virginia. A minor. Somebody that is not yet in their majority. Well, what do you mean? Well, when they cross that threshold of 18, now they're responsible. Now they're tried as an adult should they fall into the clutches of the legal system, right? So that, is that a kind of maturity? Is that an expectation of maturity? Absolutely. But y'all, is there a difference between an 18-year-old and a 40-year-old? My whole military experience was that. The difference between 18-year-olds, 22-year-olds, 27-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 35-year-olds, and 45-year-olds. The differences are amazing. The 35-year-olds dealing with the 25-year-olds. That is some ugly major versus second lieutenant stuff going on right there. Tough times or first lieutenant. When they're being knuckleheads. When they're 20, 25 going on 15. The major has no time. The 35-year-old, I, I, get out of my face. Get out of my office. Come back in 20 minutes. <laughs> what I'm saying in terms of this maturity issue is not... Uh, is there a, a standard where we've arrived? Paul says in Philippians 3, we'll never arrive until we are face-to-face -face with the Lord. But there is a point at which you can say this person's serious, sufficiently trained, sufficiently in the Word, sufficiently experienced in walking in the Word. And that's what you're looking for. And that question of laying hands too hastily is what we're talking about. Are they really spiritually mature? Because the gift of pastor, I believe, is a sign when you first become a Christian, born again, believer. When you're born again, I think you're born as what spiritually, what you are gifted to become helps teach whatever the, the gift is. I think you grow into it. And I think it's a spiritual development that produces this fruit of the spirit and the specific instance of your gift. But that requires maturity as I think all spiritual gifts do. And last, those who ordain pastors bear a heavy responsibility in the conduct of that ministry. They bear responsibility because they testified. They said, ready. So what is ordination? What are you talking about? Well, 14 years ago, next week, this church ordained me. No, it was in August, but I came here for my first Sunday. But a couple months later, you ordained me. We had several elders, had Charlie Clough, had Robbie Dean, had... Um, uh, I asked for Elliot Johnson, my, one of my favorite professors at the Dallas Seminary. He flew up and did it with us. Um, Jay Chapel on that ordination board. Am I forgetting someone or is that the crew? And then the deacons. I think that was the crew. Anyway, they and the deacons after a process of testing me publicly and asking me every theological question they could ask, the only one that stumped me was Jim Sexton asking some stuff out of Luke 16. 
I had to say, I'm going to have to look that up and get back to you. It's the only one I had to do that way. Anyway, um, we had this, uh, this ceremony where after asking me, the congregation can ask questions, anything they wanted. I had submitted a doctoral questionnaire where, you know, 40 pages of right for life on what I believed about all the various topics. I had a testimony from various people and I had been known by this church actually since the year 1997, and this was 2007, they'd known me for 10 years and the pastor had known me very well for 10 years. They felt sufficiently confident based on that to say, ready. But I have to tell you, there's a huge difference between not just in body mass index, but there's a huge difference between me in 2007 and me in 2021. It's gonna be how it is, we have to grow. So we're never really there, but we're always growing. And I contend that, um, that this is what we've just experienced is kind of a portrait of pastoral ministry of what it's supposed to be like. I would leave you with this thought that defines what Preston City Bible Church is all about. Love from a pure heart, a sincere faith, a, a clear, clear heart, a sincere faith, and a, a clean conscience, or however he says in 1 Timothy 1.5. That doesn't come about because we just choose to. That comes about because the word of God is being developed and cultivated in us, and it's having its way. God is building his character in us through the word. That's the only way. And that's why God consistently says, feed my sheep. It's about the word and what God does supernaturally in you with the word. It's not about the personalities of the people that stand up here. Every personality is desperately wanting except Jesus. And no one is Jesus, but Jesus. It's about the word, the supernaturally Holy Spirit inspired, mediated word of God which he uses in you in a ministry called the filling of the Holy Spirit. That, that beloved is why we assemble. And that's why I had nine points to summarize something out of 1 Timothy chapter five. What else do I have to say? What else do I have to bring to the table? I could have said 50 or 60 more things about pastoral ministry than these things, but these are the things the text is talking about. So that's what I talk about. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we proclaim the death of Jesus Christ until he comes together, but we make no assumptions about your status before him. We don't know if you've trusted in Christ as your savior or not. In some of your cases, you're new with us. In some cases, we don't even know you. You're watching online. We want you to know that Jesus Christ had you personally in mind when he went to the cross and paid for your sins on the cross. We don't want you to get confused about a, 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 any, any Christian teachings that might say, well, Jesus might have paid for your sins. The Bible says that Jesus died for the sins of the world. The Bible says that God doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The Bible says that God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth in first Timothy, uh, uh, first I forget where. First Timothy four, one and two. The Bible says that God wants you and he demonstrated this by sending his son to die for your sins. And what you need to do in response to that is trust in that work done for you. It is not what you have done. It is what he has done. And if this is making sense to you, if you're understanding what I'm saying, that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross, you are understanding this by virtue of the grace of God working in this moment. He is helping you understand that your issue between you and God is what have you done with Christ? Have you received him? Have you trusted him? Or have you remained in your sins? 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Our Father, we praise you for the eternal life we've enjoyed, for the, the spiritual meals we've partaken today, for the privilege of proclaiming Christ's death until he comes, and the recharge we've gotten from thinking about your word, about your son, about your person. Help us be occupied with your son as we go forward, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.